I, I gave a talk recently about this commonly upheld view, one that uh, an adage that you would find in pretty much every religion across the globe, which is the golden rule. The golden rule being do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And as Zen students, even that, you know, we need to look at squarely. Is that true? What does that mean? Does that mean we're all the same? Is that, are, are we going to say then all lives matter? End of story? Or do we have a responsibility to look at the relative reality that different people face in very different ways? And we have to then meet that differently. Zen master Zhangji, Anita Feng, began practicing Zen in 1976 and later moved into the Providence Zen Center to study with Zen master Sung San. She received Inca, or permission to teach, from Zen master Jibong Robert Moore in 2008 and was given transmission by him in 2015. Today, Zen master Zhangji is the guiding teacher of the Blue Heron Zen community in Seattle, Washington. She is also an accomplished ceramicist and author. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. And we have a free month of membership for listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow. You can find that by visiting the website at quantumzenonline.org. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I've, it's actually, I have had a few people email me about you. So I'm <laughs> kind of excited. I almost never get any recommendations. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, um, I, it's, it's nice to know that there's word out and I needed a few nudges to uh, reply. So I appreciate <laughs> your patience. No, 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 it's great. And I wanted to start with this page of matriarchs that you have on your website. So if people go to the Blue Heron Zen community website, they'll see this, this list of, of matriarchs. And mm -hmm. I think some of us have seen the, the lineage list, right? Yeah, sure. It starts with the Buddha and ends with the, the teacher that we're working with. But I had never seen this matriarch list. Yeah. And it really hit me. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about what that is and how that uh -huh. came to be. Yeah. Um, oh, I appreciate the question because um, it, it really hit me too the first time I saw it. Uh, and where this comes from, this particular list, is that I had attended a retreat at Zen Center Los Angeles, uh, headed up by Wendy Agyoku Roshi. And they have this um, incredibly moving ceremony. I'm not sure how often they do it, but they have a, a part of a, a, their regular practice to recite the lineage of both the patriarchy and the matriarchy. Mm. 
And when I heard those names of women, I just burst into tears. I just was so moved by it. I didn't know who most of them were, but just that there were names and just that there was somebody had taken the care to list teachers, um, whether they were given titles of teachers or not, and you know for a fact that most of them were not given titles, but they were remembered, you know, and they were recorded. So I, I, that, is, um, that was very moving and inspiring for me. And so I asked if I could take that list that they have and put it on ours. <laughs> it's one of the great uh, things about, uh, you know, the kind of sharing that I think we found in our contemporary society among sanghas, among different lineage traditions. And so now you're in that lineage of yeah. teachers. Yeah, I mean, along with hosts and hosts of more unnamed teachers. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess part of the reason I appreciate that list is that um, while their being or their, their time on earth is not remembered um, and their, their teachings are not recorded, the fact that their name is there just adds a kind of continuity and uh, respect mm-hmm. that, that we need. Women are, uh, I, th- I think, traditionally, for various societal res- historical reasons, have been kept quiet, but that's a kind of karma that continues to this day, uh, a certain quietness. So to balance that, to put it out there as a list, here we are, you know, and here we've always been. You know, in my for my day job, I work as a minister. And one of the sort of one of the, the interesting dimensions of the, the church, as it were, is that actually the majority of the people who are parishioners are women, even though it doesn't show up necessarily that way as leaders. Now, um, I'm ordained as a Unitarian Universalist, and there actually are more, you know, if you don't count the retired ministers. There are more, more women ministers than there are men. There is this thing, at least in the United States, where women, I think, have made up sort of the body of the congregation more. Mm-hmm. And Zen actually strikes me as not really there yet. I don't know what you're... Actually, maybe the, the sangha that I'm in actually is, it probably is... What are, you, uh, what are you saying that the the that the who is here uh-huh. like who's practicing who's part who's the oh, right, right. the body right uh-huh. and which of course is where we get our teachers from right you know in in our uh, in, in in most Zen centers it strikes me that the population of practitioners is is weighed heavily with uh, men mm-hmm. and why do you think that is um, I. I think it's the precedent. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, history takes a long time. I mean, there are, there are right. incremental changes that uh, uh, influence how we are today. Uh, so 
If you look at, I mean, it's actually a really good question that you're asking and an important one, because while we are in the U.S. where there is a lot more equality and Semester Sungsan did what he could, um, um, what he was able to do in his van, you know, change, changing of uh, tradition, there is still something to the quality and the technique of the teaching that is heavily informed or shaped by a, a, a male aesthetic, if you mm-hmm. will. Yeah. A macho. You might even go uh, in whole hog and say there is, a, there, there is a certain posturing that is still more, um, men tend to be more drawn to than women. And so this is something that I'm very interested in, and um, I'm interested in shifting. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it also strikes me when I think about the Vipassana community, Mm -hmm. or the Theravadan community, that there seems to be a lot more... I'm not that fluent in it, actually, so I probably should (laughs) put that out there as a disclaimer. But I have sat some retreats with Insight and, and stuff like that, just to try it out. And it definitely felt, even though there were still, in the retreats that I sat, there were still male teachers, uh, although they have some quite famous female teachers, that the body, the congregation, if you will, the sangha, was much more, was, was full of women. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, a, a theory that I have is that uh, kongan training Mm-hmm. that we do in, in our lineage tradition um, is, uh, I, th- I think, the, the whole technique of it, the um, structure of it, is something that women tend to be uh, less interested in. Mm. And, and I say it in that way because I'm in no way saying that they are... Uh, less capable, far from it. In fact, maybe the reverse. But um, <laughs> just throwing that out as a possibility. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there, there is a lot to um, very subtle things in our lineage tradition that just simply doesn't uh, resonate with women. For example, um, just in another area, uh, there's in, in our chanting tradition, there is a, um, a tonality that is really beautifully musical mm-hmm. that I've always loved. Um, but at the end of the chants, there's a little bit of a harumph mm-hmm. kind of sound. And to my ear, as a woman and as a, you know, as a musician, I've, I have instructed and advised our sangha to soften that uh-huh. just soften it yeah even that um i think lends a certain um male emphasis if you will you know we had this about i don't know what it was it was about two years ago uh we had this i was part of this conversation that was well i, I don't want to say it got contentious but there were definitely opinions <laughs> i've heard of them <laughs> yeah and it was about the range that we chant in oh it's an endless source yeah. of conflict <laughs> and uh 
there was a, a woman who was saying, it's too low. I can't chant that low. Mm-hmm. And there was somebody there who's who'd been in the school a long, long time, a guy, and he was like, no, that's the range. That's where we do it. And I totally got her point. Sometimes I feel like it's too low. And I have a, you know, my voice can go low. And it was, it was really, to hear that there was like this unconsciousness to it of, oh yeah, this is the range we chant in because men's voices are in this low range. Well, one thing that's interesting about that anecdote you shared is that uh, the the sort of defense position is it's essentially this is the way we've done we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, all of us who are here in some kind of teaching capacity, it's it's our job to mm-hmm. upend that and mm-hmm. re-explore. Um, well, I imagine, and I just sort of push back a little bit. I imagine actually you have the difficult position of trying to hold the tradition mm-hmm. in such a way that it remains precious and you are connected to this millennia-long thing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, fascinating, uh, a, a fascinating dance, uh, um, exploration, uh, respect for tradition, honoring. Just as we have the lineage charts, we have, I mean, in... in in our physical um, daily practice, we have that in our embedded in our practice. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's a strong caution. Yes, right. change, but also honoring the long, long thread going all the way back. I have been uh, I've been leading sitting for the last. Um, I don't know how long it's like six months now or since whenever we went into quarantine, I started doing a morning and evening sit just to help people stay focused. And I do a reading afterwards and I started reading mirror of Zen, Uh uh, which is, it's about 400 years old or something like that. Uh And I couldn't, (laughs) I was so, I, I, I used it because somebody recommended it to me. I hadn't read it before and I was stunned by how, much it sounded like Zen Master Sung San. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think it's important for us when, uh, you know, those of us who sat and studied with Sung San in the early days, he was the first Asian master that any of us had met. And so it all seemed in our minds like it all came from him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he didn't encourage us to be scholarly and, and study things. So, uh, we, yeah. Absolutely, we can we can see his language coming from so many sources, from Chunul, from uh, all, you know many of the great uh, Tang Dynasty masters. Yeah, and for me, actually, I really enjoyed finding that language mm-hmm. because then all of a sudden I was just instantly transported to this this timeless thing, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, or you know, timed thing where. A lineage. It really felt like a lineage rather than this new kind of American form, even though it had been really updated mm-hmm. for those of us living in this culture. Mm-hmm. It was really wild. I, and and I, I'm going to push back against your pushback in my yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> and 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 just carry it even you know even further in that um, as an artist and as a writer, I have felt. Um, the responsibility 
to both honor the historical teachings and uh, parentage, if you uh, ancestry, along with the the um, uh, responsibility to make it our own. Uh, so you know when I um, thought about, I love stories, and I think a lot of us were drawn to Zen by the stories. You know, it's just. Um, I come from a, a Jewish background, and so to my mind, these it it resonated like so many of these old Hasidic tales mm-hmm. um, have the same kind of teaching, same kind of language. Um, so, storytelling is is a great way to honor history, but not be held by it as if it were literal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Writing the book that I ended up writing, Sid, which is a retelling of the life of Buddha, um, I gave myself permission to retell it in you know through my own voice and my own sexuality, my own uh, creativity. One of the when I was researching this, so that just to to say a little bit about that that book, it's retelling the life of Siddhartha in two ways, the ancient way and also a contemporary way. So two different, one Siddhartha, one Sid. But in researching Siddhartha, um, it was fun and interesting work to do. Um, I was just exploring about history, what history is. And I came across this interesting fact that it wasn't until the 14th century that there was a distinction made between history and the word story. Those two words were synonymous. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. When I came across that, I thought, great. You know, we, let's just not worry about this right. too much. Um, in all the fantastical language about the, the this many marks of the Buddha and the many, many kalpas of this happening and that happening. Um, just stick with the, uh, draw close to the spirit and the teaching. Mm-hmm. And then see where it could go that would include, as we were saying earlier, the women. Mm-hmm. And provide a, a, a clear, strong space for the women's teaching along with other things. I think this, this is great that you brought up uh, your novel, Sid. You, you also have a couple books of poetry, mm-hmm. and you're a, a ceramicist. Mm-hmm. Who, and my understanding is most of your sculpture tends to be uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yes. Is that? And I was reading something about you. Well, I have a a quote here, you were talking about iconography mm-hmm. and um, and how like it's important to have, well, this is this is the quote that it was. It said, there's something wonderful and necessary about having an idealized image that inspires us to think that equanimity is possible. What is dangerous is when we start to believe equanimity looks like this. And you we're putting it in this context of you looked out and you saw all of these Buddhas and they all kind of looked the same. 
And so you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make, <laughs> I'm going to make them look different <laughs> because in light, you know, awakening is a different experience for every person. So perhaps. Well, you know, just to jump in there, right. Yes, that spot. Um, yeah. Often in, in those of us who have practiced Zen uh, meditation, we have learned that the primary teaching that there are two truths. You know, there's the, um, absolute truth mm-hmm. before thinking don't know mind there are many words for it and then there's the relative truth right which is um in our fleeting um you know particular bodies that uh, and minds that we come into this world with so of course if you look at the history of of the uh, iconography of buddhism when it was in India looked a certain way. When it, when it came to Japan, the figures looked Japanese. Wonder of wonders. You know, are we, <laughs> should we be surprised? Right. And, and, and here, Zen Buddhism has been in this country now for quite a while. And come on, show, show us who we are. Right. Yeah, show us who we are. So, I feel that that's, uh, you know, we're, we're just beginning still, we're still in the very early phases of Buddhism in America, but since I happen to be um, somebody who plays with mud and um, is sort of of a creative bent, it just felt like this would be fun to do and timely to do. So making Buddhas that look like women, making Buddhas that look like they're people who are old, um, Native Americans, African American Buddhas, um, Buddhas that show some wear and tear, um, sorrow, pain, all these things. It's that they can pinpoint that place of the relative and the absolute by their unique features. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like. Christianity has also been going through that experience in the last I mean maybe it's maybe it's longer maybe it's only that I've been paying attention to it but um <laughs> in the last 20 years or so but they you know there was this big controversy when I was uh controversy whatever there were some people who were <laughs> thought it was controversial but the Catholic Church had commissioned artwork and the piece that was chosen was this black woman Mm-hmm. to be Jesus. And people are like, that's not my Jesus. And it's like, Whoa, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I've met some um, some ruffled feathers and, and objections <laughs> over my Buddha. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, in the old days when, when I was younger, I, I used to do a lot of uh, art shows, street shows. Mm-hmm. And so I, in Seattle, here in Seattle, I, I, about 10 years ago, I did a street show with my Buddhists. I just, you know, there are all these other arts and crafts, and I put my Buddhists out there. And this guy comes up to my booth, and he looks at them, and he looks at them, and he gets red in the face, and he just practically screams at me, that is not what Buddha looks like. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I wonder um, what he thought Buddha looked like. <laughs> and I've had people write to me, can you make me uh, a Buddha that, that is bald? 
And uh-huh. the, so some, somebody had done a lot of scholarship and said, you know, according to my research, um, back in the day, in Buddha's day, he just looked like everyone else among the monks. And he went shaved head like everyone else. And he pointed to various quotes and scriptures that justified that. And so he asked me to make a, um, a Buddha, please, without the curly you know, right. hairdo. Right. So fine. Yeah. There's this other quote that I, I love. And it's, to me, it's interesting. Like I hear you referencing sort of aesthetics, you know, we were talking about it earlier and um, just in terms of how you teach and, or your sensitivity to the teaching. Right. But I loved this quote. Uh, it said, I always felt that clay was my first Zen master. <laughs> Making pottery is the perfect metaphor for practice. It takes centering an unruly mass on a spinning wheel. Oh, it requires centering on an unruly mass on a spinning wheel. And I don't know if you still feel that way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I I began um, my my simultaneous love affair and um, um, uh, discipleship (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been a devoted disciple of Clay since 1974. And uh, learning how to throw on the wheel is a fast, I mean, the process is fascinating because in a very physical way, here is this lump of clay that's on a madly spinning wheel, and it's going all different directions. And it weighs a lot, and by all that centrifugal force of that madly spinning wheel, immediately, you know, the, as a beginner, the mind just goes into panic mode. Um, I don't know how to control this. Mm-hmm. So all of this should already be sounding familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't as know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's... It, w- our mind um, goes into uh, um, its usual um, three choices, fight, flight, or freeze, mm. um, to, to some extent. And so here's this madly spinning, messy clay, read, difficult to control situation in my life. I have no idea what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So what are the instructions for learning how to throw on the wheel? Breathe. Um, you know, just referencing your website name, right. <laughs> you have to be still, you have to breathe. And, and I, I learned this early on, that the, the power of our breath in learning how to center clay. If I'm holding my breath, then uh, by extension, my arms, my torso, my hands are, are kind of locked in tight. So with that tightness, I cannot feel um, and respond with sensitivity mm. to what the clay is doing. Also, I have no strength. So um, through the process of breathing and maintaining a strong center, um, placing my hands on the clay, having complete confidence in myself, but in not so much in myself as in my eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, having confidence in the ex- direct experience. And 
once you place your hands on this madly spinning, chaotic mess, press in, go into the center. It centers of itself. So it's not so much me exerting my will over the situation at hand. It's meeting it 100% and staying steady and paying attention. So there's the obvious, you know, the obvious teaching of Zen. Back in the day when I lived at the Providence Zen Center, um, I had a studio um, in this little building right next to the Zen uh, main building. It's probably still there, but it, um, I, I was living there at the time when we it just opened and so uh, we would have I, I would host zen and pottery workshops back in the day which was a lot of fun so before we got on the interview today i was listening to a podcast or no not a podcast it was a it was a talk that i think you gave to the seattle soto group. Uh-huh. And it was called something like Dharma for an election year or something like that. <laughs> I don't and, even remember that. <laughs> and it was really about advice for Zen students mm -hmm. coming into an election year, which, mm -hmm. you know, here we are. Yeah. Again. Again. You know, uh we're right now at the recording of this, we're sort of wrapping up the democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Republican one is coming up in like a week or something. Like that. I'm not really sure, but I think that's right. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, we're in mid-August, so three months from now, we'll have an election. And the nation is tense. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, in Biden's talk last night, he had a lot of reference to sort of light and dark. And, you know, we're in the... We're in a battle, and here we are as Zen students trying to, you know, which one is correct? You know, the two monks rolled up the shade. Which one, you know, which one is correct? And uh, so it sounds like you're you're pointing to the the um, ongoing dilemma of dualistic presentations and thinking, and and and. Where there is tension um, globally, uh, where there is great suffering globally, it's our go-to, you know, our human go-to um, uh, phenomenon to to heighten the differences, to heighten, uh, to pre present our reality, bifurcate our reality mm -hmm. as good and bad, light and dark, um, demon, angel. In this kind of language, and as Zen students, yes, you're 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 drawing up the you know the the case of various kungans. In fact, most kungans did present some kind of bifurcated um, story, and how do we meet that? Is mm -hmm. the uh, job of a practitioner. How do we meet it with clarity, with compassion, with truth? Um, and with um, a fitting function. Right. Yeah. So 
Uh, as Zen students, it's really important. Uh, I gave a talk about this um, just recently. It's really important for us to respect and honor the reality of that divisiveness. In other words, this is our world, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's in pain, and this is the way that pain is manifesting. And it may not be clear, um, and there are a lot of things that um, have gone wrong, but we need to respect that. Essentially, that what that means is respect the karma that all of this comes out of. So could you say a little more? Because I think some people might find that a little abstract. So Yeah, yeah. So um, if a politician says, okay, I'm here representing the light, and mm-hmm. that other person over there is representing the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and we got our costuming yes. um, to our liking now. Right. Um, so there, there, there are really two things that we need to do as, as Zen students. Is, is One is, well, be careful not to just swallow whatever is presented whole. Mm-hmm. Um, to um, try in our practice to see what the underlying reality is. Um, you know, A, B, C, D happened under this last presidency, on this current presidency, um, this current regime, if you will. And um, this is what somebody is proposing will happen in the next regime. Avoid, avoiding the inflammatory, div- uh, further divisive language, can we see what is actually happening uh, and respond accordingly? So then, um, what are what is it that we're respecting? We're respecting the truth of what is happening, what has happened. So part of that is a responsibility to be informed, to know mm-hmm. it's to to. Um, you know, my husband's from mainland China. He grew up um, under Chairman Mao's regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he often calls it the religion of Mao, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. he's forsworn all religion ever since. Uh, but he described that for people growing up in such a heavily uh, controlled society, they knew already that the information they were receiving was not true. Hmm. They knew it was colored, it was shaped to have a certain effect. So it became something of a fine art among the Chinese people to read between the lines, to be able to discern what is true, mm. what probably really happened. Mm. And so in our current um, world of mm, uh, social media, of disinformation, of um, people just saying whatever they want to say and saying it's true, I think we're just starting to to figure out that we need, we have this responsibility and we need to um, discern um, what is true. So I may have gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but I, um, respecting the relative world means taking responsibility for discovering what is true for ourselves. 
we don't want to be like lemmings. You know, the, the very simple, I, I gave a talk recently about this commonly upheld view, one that, uh, an adage that you would find in pretty much every religion across the globe, which is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. And so as Zen students, the golden rule being do unto yourselves, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. And as Zen students, even that, you know, we need to look at squarely. Is that true? What does that mean? Does that mean we're all the same? Is that, are, are we going to say then all lives matter? Mm-hmm. End of story? Or do we have a responsibility to look at the relative um, reality that different people face in very different ways? And we have to then meet that differently. Yeah, I've never liked that phrase. I always, I heard someone once say, do unto others as they would like to have done for them, rather than me decide, right? It's awkward, but it's actually quite a different phrase. Yes. Right? In other words, pay attention. Pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it can often be our Zen shorthand for, uh, you know, the variables are infinitely um, changing, different, and if we're paying attention, we can meet that and be of service. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Zheng Ji encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the Blue Heron Zen Community website at blueheronzen.org or by visiting Anita's artist page at anitafeng.com. I will include links to both of those websites in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible to try a free month of our online training. Just visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free month. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.